Hello, and welcome back to Fade In, a podcast from the club's screenwriting at Victoria College at the University of Toronto, where we take a critical look at film storytelling. Today, I'll be having a special one-on-one chat with SVC's very own faculty advisor, Daniel Scott Tisdale. Daniel was a professor of English and creative writing at the University of Toronto Scarborough campus. He is also an award-winning poet, filmmaker, and published author. Originally from Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan, Daniel developed a passion for experimental and independent films from an early age, which put him on his path as a writer. He earned his BA in English from the University of Regina, followed by two MAs, one in English from Arcadia University in Nova Scotia, and a subsequent one in creative writing from U of T, where he has taught up until now. Daniel won the Relit Award, a Canadian literary prize, for his poetry back in 2007. In 2013, he published his instructional creative writing book called The Writing Moment, A Practical Guide to Creating Poems, with Oxford University Press. In 2015, he embarked on an innovative project with many of his students, adapting the poems in his collection, Vocational Poems, into short films which he uploaded to YouTube. Daniel released his most recent publication, a short story collection called Waveforms and Doom Scrolls, in November of 2021. Daniel has taught the Victoria College course Writing for the Stage and Screen, and has been our club's faculty advisor since 2020. Since then, he has led two special club activities, our Virtual Writer's Room Workshop in February of 2021, and most recently, our club's Screenwriting Workshop in January of this year. We also interviewed Daniel for Volume 2 of our journal Screenwriter's Perspectives, which was published in early 2021, for which he also wrote the introductory preface. I spoke to Daniel back in September of 2021, where we discussed the role of formal education in fostering creativity, his eclectic array of experience writing stories in multiple mediums, whether poetry, film, or prose. And finally, Daniel's views on the world of art and individual creative expression more broadly. We hope you enjoy our conversation. I'm joined now by Daniel Scott Tisdale, a creative writing instructor at UTSC and faculty advisor for our club Screenwriting at Victoria College. Daniel, how's it going? Very good, very good. Great to be here. I am happy we had a chance to speak after so long, even though we haven't had a chance to meet in person yet. Uh, Yeah, that's right. I hadn't even thought of that. (laughs) But I'm I'm just thrilled that uh, we had a chance to coordinate this. Uh, And before we start, I'm just curious to hear from you, because obviously I know from the student side that this past year and a half of online learning has not been the most ideal, to to put it lightly. Uh, I want to hear from you from the instructor side of things, especially since last year you were teaching the screenwriting course at Vic. Like, how did you find this this general weird online space that we were in? Yeah, I mean, I'll say for me, you know, initially, I really struggled with it, you know, having no training in online teaching and never having done it. But, But it really did make me realize that a lot of the things I was struggling with with online teaching were just a lot of my own insecurities and a lot of my own personal hangups. And so it really was a chance to kind of sit with those experiences and, and you know, have, a, have an experience of learning and growth that I think, I think these are hangups and, and insecurities I had in in-person teaching, you know? So I think this online experience and the kind of reckoning that comes with it, you know, will also make me, a, I think, a better in-person teacher. Um, but then in terms of the online teaching itself, yeah, like I do feel like that I've gotten in the hang of it, gotten the swing of things. I think, you know, both, because I've taught that screenwriting class now, you know, twice online, teaching it a third time now. And, you know, good feedback. The students seem to bond still online and based on the quality of the scripts, you know, the, the class was still working. You know, people were writing a lot of great material. So 
uh, I'd say, you know, obviously the in-person will always be the best, but I think online we're making it work. And really, I would say the biggest thing I miss the most, especially with the screenwriting class is field trips, not being mm-hmm. able to go to TIFF, you know, not being able to go. One of the, one of the things with that class is we go to the, you know, if it's in the winter term, going to the Oscar nominated shorts at TIFF, you know, so we can see those before the Oscars, we can make our picks, we can rage at the Oscars when they pick the wrong winner, you know, all that kind of fun stuff. So I'd say that's probably the biggest downer. That sounds like so much fun. Uh, And incidentally, I I took a play class last semester and I was so disappointed that we didn't get to do field trips to go see the actual performances. So I'm like, maybe this year, we'll see. Uh But I'm curious, I I can only speak for the UTSG class experience, but at Scarborough, are things still online right now or is there some in-person? Yeah, we've gone, we've stayed fully online uh, for the fall, Um, you know, which suits me. I think it's, you know, I think it's just, it's ended up being safer, but I think the main thing is it just gave faculty a peace of mind throughout the summer where we knew what was coming and we knew what to prepare for, you know, there weren't going to be any kind of last minute surprises. So I'd say that's been uh, the biggest benefit. Mm -hmm. And do you know, as of right now, are there any uh, plans to potentially return in person for the winter semester in 2022? That's, that's a great question. And, you know, it's funny because I have a department meeting today, so I'll probably get more info. But but yeah, last I heard was the plan, you know, is uh, is to be in person. You know, I have all my rooms booked and everything like that. So fingers crossed. Well, by the time this episode premieres, hopefully uh, people will be listening to it on their commutes to class. Uh, exactly, yeah. Back to normal. <laughs> so let, let's use this as the sort of test to see if, if things can return to some normalcy. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, well, it's great to hear that you were able to make the most of your, your online course experience a little more broadly, because uh, I'm pretty familiar with a lot of your stuff already. Of course, we had our interview in the past for the journal. Uh, yeah. And I think you're a really fascinating figure as far as screenwriting goes, Daniel, because obviously you're a creator, you're a filmmaker, uh, you engage in all these sort of experimental projects, yeah. and you have that sort of practical craft-based experience. Uh, but you're also an instructor. You have that uh, academic theoretical uh, side to you. And I'm always curious to, to hear how the, those two sides go here mm. when it comes to creatives, because I think usually there's this perhaps false binary between like, you know, th- those who teach it and, and those who do it, or, you know, the theoretical and the practical, but you seem to have synthesized them quite well. So I'm just curious to hear your general approach in balancing those. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's a great question. And, and thank you for that comment. Yeah, I mean, I would say, you know, for me as a creator, you know, so poetry was where I started, right? And, and I would say for me as a creator, it is, you know, not that I want to say just that cliche answer of like balance, but yeah, definitely I found, you know, I can look back over like, my goodness, like 25 years of like writing at this point, And I can see these kind of swings, right, where the theoretical and the, and the historical, you know, getting, getting into these readings, getting into that side of things and the way that can then influence your writing. You know, I can look at phases where maybe I went too far in that direction, right. Where maybe then it was too academic or too obscure for someone who wasn't in on those conversations. Um, And so I'd say for me as a creator, uh, it's often been a push of, of trying to pull back and, who is the audience for this, right? How, how can I open this up to more people? And, and, and yeah, how, how, how can I just make this, yeah, like a, at a more, you know, put it simply accessible and, and, and inclusive work. Um, so that's definitely a, a tension that I've, I've, I've kind of like struggled with, worked with. Um, 
but yeah, like in terms of thinking of the teaching side of it, I, you know, I know coming up as a writer, if I would read interviews with writers, you know, and, 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 and read, you know, interviews with, you know, filmmakers, there is that, yeah, that kind of, as you're saying, that cliche of like, yeah, those who can't do teach and, you know, people kind of complaining about having to teach because it takes them away from their work. But, but I've definitely had the opposite experience where just that intense learning that come, you know, you already know a field, but now you have to teach it. So you almost have to learn it again because you have to learn how do I communicate this to other people, right? How do I, how do I make this kind of hands-on kind of knowledge that they can gain? And so I've learned so much of it as an artist. I've learned so much as a creator through teaching, you know, both because I have to now approach the material and speak about it and share it in a different way. But also, of course, when you're working with, you know, in, in, the, in the creative arts, you're all equals, you know, in a way that maybe isn't true in a lot of academic, you know, areas, because we're all students, you know, when we're filmmakers, when we're screenwriters, we're all always learning. And so when we're in the classroom together, even though I am the instructor, I am the professor, you know, I'm still obviously gaining and learning from the insights uh, of the class. So I'd say, yeah, really, that's that kind of double perk of, of teaching. But yeah, and it's interesting, though, for me, too, it's like, I've always moved, you know, and I think this is important as, as creators is just letting ourselves be the creators and the learners that we are, because for whatever reason, I learn best through the experimental. And, you know, and, and it's been that with my, my poetry, it was that with my fiction, and it was that with my with my filmmaking, where my earlier works are more experimental. And it's sort of like, once I've got a handle on that, it's almost like now I have better access to do to do something that's more, you know, viewer friendly, reader friendly. Mm -hmm. And from what I understand, like film was always like your lifelong passion. Like that was yeah. what you were doing when you were a kid. And sort of the, the English uh, literature scholarly trappings came a little later. Is that correct? Yeah, that's exactly it, right? Like I got a camcorder for my uh, grade eight graduation and, and just started making films all the time with my family and my friends. And yeah, it's hilarious, right? You know, because we've been talking about this theoretical and academic stuff, but it's like, all those years when I was a teenager, I just totally thought I was going to grow up and make like Zed grade horror movies, like Full Moon Pictures, like, like Puppet Master 12 or like Doll Man 6. Like, I just thought I was going to make trash horror movies. And, and, you know, that, that would be my kind of like happy life. But really, you couldn't go on in a more opposite direction than that, you know, like weird experimental filmmaker, poet, professor. Um, but uh, yeah, so that, that, was, that was the kind of dream. Uh, and, and so, you know, honestly, with some of my writing right now, and then even, even some filmmaking projects, I'm definitely kind of pushing back into horror, working on a horror novel, working on an experiment, again, experimental horror short, but, but definitely, you know, I'm, I'm not giving up on the dream of making uh, Demonic Toys uh, 16. <laughs> your, your students are lucky to have you. Uh, you'd, you'd be a very cool prof. I'm, I'm just sad that I've never had the, the privilege of being in one of your classes as of yet, but maybe in the future. Yeah, uh, hopefully. This will sweeten the deal for some listeners, maybe. <laughs> uh, I, I'm curious because I know in a lot of your nonfiction instructional writings, you seem to carry over that um, synthetic ethos of, you know, the, the practical with the theoretical backing. Yeah. And I'm thinking of your, your poetry book, The Writing Moment, uh, specifically, yeah. which came out a few years ago. Yeah. Um, and I, 
I've not read it. I'm not going to pretend like uh, <laughs> so this was a great book, Daniel. I definitely recommend. <laughs> I, I, I just haven't had the time to read it yet. It's definitely on my list. But from what I hear from uh, interviews you've conducted with other people about it, uh, you, you sort of tried to uh, gear it so that it would allow people to do like regular writing practices, but also give them a knowledge of some poetry forms and meter stanza and all, all those uh, theoretical uh, things we usually associate with an English degree. So I'm curious to hear a little bit more about this book specifically and how that relates to all that. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, it was an interesting process how it came about. I was having a cow meeting. Cow is the UTSC creative writing group. And it was one of these days when lots of people were there. So there must have been like almost 20 people piled in my tiny little office. And there was a faint little knock on the door. And, and one of the students got up to answer it. And, and this, it, it was very quiet because someone very quiet was reading their story. So it was like 20 people in my office, but it was like, it was like you wouldn't even think someone was in there. So there's a quiet knock. One of the students answered it. And this poor person who was at the door almost like fell over the edge of like one of these, you know, humanities wing precipices because she was like so shocked that there was 20 people in this, <laughs> in this glorified closet that I call it office. And, and so it turned out who it was is, is it was the acquisitions editor for Oxford University Press. Oh God. And, and, she, and she wanted to see, did I want to pitch an idea to write a, to write a how to write poetry textbook? And, and so I think that moment, you know, helped me get in good with her, you know, and she saw, okay, here's someone who's just like connected with students and, and, is, and is kind of putting in that extra work. But, but what happened after that then is I have to make a proposal. So I, ha I looked at, you know, probably 50 different how to write, you know, books, whether it's on poetry, fiction, nonfiction, just to see how do they work. And I realized that, that they all follow that model of, Here's a lot of like theory and, and reflection and analysis. And now here's a couple prompts. And I realized that's not how I learned. That's not how I teach. And so in my pitch to Oxford, I kind of had, you know, you want to think of like, how do you sell to people? And so my kind of pitch to them was that practice precedes abstraction. That mm -hmm. you need to practice first. You need a bit of hands-on experience. And then we can get into that abstraction. Then we can get into the theoretical. Then we can get into describing things. So yeah, that's totally how that whole book works is it's called the writing moment because it's a bunch of writing moments. You'll do writing, you know, just a quick little prompt. And it's like, oh, you just made imagery in this way. Here's another prompt. Keep building on it. Oh, you just use symbolic imagery, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, it really was about putting that practice first. That's fascinating. Practice precedes abstraction. It, it makes so much sense. And yet, unfortunately, I think in our department, you know, English, like for, for, you know, people that are interested in being writers and do an English degree, it's like sort of the opposite. You learn the abstract before you get into yeah. practical, like, what do you make of that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, it definitely like, it means you got to put in some extra work, right? Yourself as, as a writer, it means you got to have an extra level of awareness. Cause yeah, definitely for me, you know, there wasn't a lot of creative writing students say when I was an undergrad. And so I was definitely letting that academic side influence my writing too much. And, and, and it wasn't until I kind of like got out of school for a bit, you know, it was just bartending and kind of writing and, you know, you know, just kind of reading a lot more as a writer that I realized, oh no, I, I need to completely rethink how I'm, how I'm approaching, how I'm approaching my creative work. Mm -hmm. and, and this is slightly tangential, but I think the same uh, applies to screenwriting in a lot of ways, because obviously there are these 
instructional books that we're all too familiar with, especially in the club, Robert McKee's story, yeah, 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 Anatomy yeah. of Story, which are all great books. But I yeah. think maybe the, the sort of danger we're describing here in terms of learning that theory before actually uh, cutting your teeth, you know, getting practice writing the screenplay uh, is very much the same. I, I'm curious to, to hear your general thoughts on the idea of, you know, instructional screenwriting books like those. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think they're great. Obviously, as someone, as we just talked about, as someone who's written a poetry textbook, I don't want to, I want to, I want to be like pro uh, uh, textbook. No, only but, yours is good. The rest but yeah, of only mine. <laughs> but I, I will say like, there was a, there was a professor and sadly his name's escaping me, but he taught at Acadia University where I did my first master's degree. And, and he was, he was kind of one of their, their like academic writing professors, but I went to a few of his talks because I know he was very inspirational and he had a line, writing is revelation. And he, so he was really trying to push against a lot of that, you know, overthinking and over planning, you know, that often we're kind of taught when we're doing academic writing and just write, you're not going to know what you're saying until you're writing. And I think, I think his method is very true for creative writing too. Like, I do think it is a case of like, it's just as important to just write and just and just get that get those ideas out there get those characters in the world start to inhabit those spaces get to know those characters because their actions will surprise you and 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 of course then lead to your story lead to these climaxes you know lead to these entertaining works but yeah i also firmly believe that the more we know about our structures the more we know about our tools the better writers that will be so i do think that these textbooks are completely you know, I won't say necessary, but I'll say they're necessary for me. You know, I think some people can just like watch movies and they can figure it out and they can, you know, they can see the structures, they can do that. But I definitely know for me, I would not have become a storyteller. I would not have become a screenwriter if it wasn't for, you know, books like that, introducing me to the tools uh, and, 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 you know, basically giving me that guidance, you know, in my viewing. Mm -hmm. I think McKee's quote comes to mind here, like about the difference between writing rules and writing guidelines suggested in books, whereas like rules are ironclad and they say you must do this. Guidelines yeah. say, well, a lot of people in the past did this and it yeah. worked for them. So maybe consider it before you completely shirk it. It sort of seems similar to what you're saying. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. And sort of apropos of that, uh, apologies for what may seem like a very broad question, but can you just give us a sense of what your writing processes, whether it's for poems or stories or films or anything else? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll talk about the film side of it because it is, it is, it's, I mean, I, I should, I love writing poems. I love writing stories, but obviously when you're working on a film, it's slightly more fun because you're kind of getting to do that process of getting words on the page while also thinking about the visuals or even, you know, shooting the visuals. Uh, and so for me, with the, with the film projects, it does tend to be that kind of combination of writing the script and then also having that fun of starting to visualize it, whether it means all, you know, starting to gather images, starting to shoot images, or just starting to draw those thumbnails, you know, maybe of, of, of the storyboard of what it might start to look like. Um, but yeah, like for me, it, it, it always starts with, you know, some kind of destabilizing incident, some, something that kind of shocks or surprises or disturbs me so just to talk about something that I'm working on right now um you know I'm, I'm staying at a, a lake right now in a cabin and we got all sorts of bird feeders up and a hummingbird hit the window the other day and it was it was stunned but luckily it wasn't injured it didn't have any broken you know bones it didn't have any blood 
And so I kind of like throughout the day nursed it back to health, you know, bringing the feeder to it and, and helping feed it. And so, yeah, I just had this experience with the hummingbird. And, and just from there, suddenly this voice kind of opened up in me, this voiceover. And so I've started scribbling notes for that, you know, just an outline. And then also I was like, oh, this window that the bird hit is my actual kind of central subject. And so I've just been filming that window at different times of the day, doing kind of different things with that. And, and something else that I've been had fun thinking about is like, how does the form, how does the physicality, how does the wing beats, how do all these elements of a hummingbird potentially shape the editing? How does it potentially shape the form of the film? And so, yeah, that's, that's definitely, uh, that's how my process works. And definitely kind of one of the things that I love, love about it, especially, yeah, that film side of it, where you get to, to weave both, both aspects of it together. Daniel Tisdale, a uh, friend to hummingbirds worldwide. Uh, <laughs> I, I love it. Uh, and the way you're describing it, I think your, your approach to writing seems very much like a, a, a merger of, you know, these two things, you know, you, you plan obviously, but you also make room for spontaneity and inspiration, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's great. And you mentioned uh, form and content, uh, which is great because uh, it is uh, something I wanted to touch upon next with two of your poems actually that were adapted into films. And I, I think they're both really interesting case studies. Uh, I want to start with The Oath of Isis, uh, which if people don't know, it was part of your vocational poems uh, video project, which was basically a collection of poems you wrote that were adapted into very short films, about yeah. a minute or two each. And this one called The Oath of Isis, uh, in the past you've said it's probably one of your favorite ones that you've done. And it's, it's pretty striking, I think, uh, not the least because it incorporates form and content uh, and, you know, weaves those together so well. So I'm, I'm curious to hear a little bit more maybe about how, you know, the, the form was influenced by the content for that poem or vice versa. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so just to be clear to listeners, when we're talking about ISIS here, we're talking about the goddess ISIS. I should have prepped this time. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and so we have, you know, so we have a book of poems that's vocational, right? So it's speculative poetry, it's alt history poetry. And so with that poem, you know, to kind of go back to that poem's inception, yeah, I was thinking, okay, first of all, the way it came about is, uh, was I was at the Labor History Museum in Manchester with one of my best friends, Stuart Cole, amazing poet teacher, uh, who was uh, there doing some research. And yeah, it was cool going through there and seeing like all these different guilds and that workers had their oaths, you know, I'm like, that's awesome. I was like, we don't have enough oaths anymore. So I was like, you know, so that's just in the back of my head, I'm going to write an oath. And so I was like, okay, I'm working on this book, Vocational Poems. And suddenly I'm like, oh, you know, ISIS is always in the news of all, all this kind of terrible violence and stuff. And then I was just like, oh, damn, what if the opposite happened? What if the goddess ISIS came, you know, like this, who would fight for equality? You know, the West would hate her just as much as they hate our world, <laughs> right? That's the, that's the terrible fact. And so it was an oath where we could kind of like pledge our allegiance uh, uh, to her. And then so the adaptation came about with the Vocational Poems video project, you know, because I was like, okay, so I want to adapt poems. But I was like, right, you need that, you need that form, you need that kind of guidance. So it's not just like, oh, here's me reading a poem. And so, so the limit I gave myself was each Vocational Poem video project had to be a popular YouTube genre, right? So that's why we have one that's an acapella song. You know, that's why we have one that's like a lost footage has been discovered piece. And so for Oath of Isis, I wanted to do that genre where it's like, 
you know, 20 different people reading a thing uh, together. So that's how that, that form uh, came about. And then, you know, another reason that piece was so special then, because all the people that I was collaborating with in that were at the time, either former students or present students. So it was really fun to like, be able to create something with them and see, see the fun things or unique things that they did with their reading uh, or their footage. Mm-hmm. Especially Yoda Claus. He was, uh, he was a real treat. <laughs> totally. Uh, and then and- Mo, I got to give a shout out to Mo when we're doing this, because Mo was the one, right? That whole thing when he's, he gave that whole context for the piece, right? He's like, the goddess Isis is like arisen. And he like did, a, he just totally improvised that. I didn't ask him for that, but it's just like, I, I love that guy. He is just like so smart. He's so fun. He's so funny. And it's just like, he made that video. Yeah, it was definitely great. And as you mentioned, the whole conceits of the video, the, the double meanings of ISIS and this whole camcorder oath uh, format, yeah. I think it re- really lent itself well to it. And just to digress a little bit here, I know in the past uh, you've discussed the the surprising similarities between writing something like a poem and writing a screenplay, which people I don't think would normally associate uh, with one another. But you highlighted some some pretty interesting areas of overlap, not the least of which were the need for concision in writing and uh, concrete visual imagery in both of these different mediums. Uh, so do you care to comment on how you you try to bring that into your maybe filmmaking endeavors? Yeah, that, that's great. And you, you, you did highlight there two of the, you know, two of the key things. Um, it's interesting to think about because of course people are gonna, are gonna, you know, write what they're sort of drawn to and, and, and read what they're drawn to. But I, I do think that, you know, say in the case of you are a screenwriter, you know, I, I think it is worth like reading some poetry, trying your hand at writing poetry for the, you know, for this concision, for the concrete imagery, as, as you noted. But especially if you're into someone who's into a more kind of personal cinema um, and, and, you know, doing, making a lot of your own work, like, like I'm interested in doing, you know, it, it, I found my, 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 you know, work as a poet and experience as a poet really paid off in editing. You know, there is that sense of, of the rhythm of an edit, of building motifs, of pacing, that that came very kind of it ended up coming quite naturally to me even though the software itself necessarily did not come natural to me um but once i kind of cracked that you know i did see oh wow i, I can really see how you know decades of, of reading and writing uh, poetry is has has helped this um but i think that's true for any of the arts you know i think it is always a good idea obviously we want to get deeply into it, into the forms and the genres that we love but i think the overlap is always going to be fertile and it is always going to feed and, and, and help you generate new work and unique work. Mm-hmm. One thing I was struck about listening to your TED talk was just hearing your, your diversity of artistic influences. So you'd talk about like Jay Electronica yeah. in the same sentence as Wordsworth or the, yeah. the comic book writer, uh, Linda Berry. So you seem to like to, to dip your, your fingers in a lot of different creative pools as it were. Yeah, I've always been like that where I just love, you know, it's why I'm not good. Like, as you know, you and I were talking a little earlier privately about going to TIFF and it's like, I love, I love movies so much and I love, there's not a genre I don't like. And it's like, I almost feel like, you know, and I, I guess I'm like this with all art. I'm, I, I don't bring a like, oh, this is the standard. This is what a movie should be. It's like each movie is just like its own animal. You know, I don't, again, I don't look at a hummingbird and think, 
boy, hummingbird, you're so small. You suck as a bird, you know, <laughs> or like, bear, hey, bear, bear, why don't you have wings? What's wrong with you? You could fly around, you know, and I feel like it's like that with movies. It's like, what kind of animal is this movie, right? And it, what, what's its territory, you know, how does it, how does it sort of move around and, and exist? And so that's, you know, I, I think that broad taste helps me as an artist and helps me as a viewer, but it does then make me a terrible critic. You know, no one can trust my reviews because I'm just like, I almost love everything. <laughs> I, I mean, to be fair, a flying bear does sound pretty cool. So I, <laughs> I, I might have to advocate for that, but I, 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 I totally get your broader point there. And it's interesting. I've spoken to a lot of creatives and like the one uh, common thing they've all said, which you're also saying right now is like, enjoy a variety of different mediums, you know, like expose yourself to, to things outside of your, your wheelhouse or interest, because that's how you get better uh, yeah. as a writer. You know, I was, I was speaking, yeah. this is somewhat unrelated for another podcast to a comic book writer yeah. who was also uh, an animator uh, and an artist for album covers uh, and uh, did a, a variety of other things. And he spoke about how all these seemingly disparate skills just sort of uh, melded into one another so that it, it helped him later on you know you're you were mentioning like editing uh, a film and how that's so comparable to like the rhythm you try to simulate with poetry uh, and I think that's just really awesome yeah and you just can't predict it right you have no idea where these things are going to take you and you just have to you just have to trust going there have that kind of adventurous spirit to go there like on, on a bit of a side note like one of the things that I've started doing over the pandemic more is actually playing poker and I, I always loved cards when I was a kid, but, but I haven't played cards for years. I'd never played poker before, but it was a way to connect online with a group of writers who I was friends with and some, some I didn't know. But it's just, I had no idea how suddenly playing poker, learning about it, studying it a bit has actually been uh, part psychological work. You know, I've realized it's like, oh, wait, I'm actually the worst possible poker player because you're supposed to be logical and mathematical and you're supposed to keep your emotions down. I'm completely a rational, high emotional person. So it's been fun, like trying to like, just experiencing myself that way and, 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 and maybe becoming less emotional and, and finding ways to, to avoid that. And then also too, the creativity, suddenly it's like, oh, I'm working on a, a little poker essay. I'm working on a little poker story, right? You just have no idea where these different passions are going to take you. Daniel Tisdale's short film adaptation of his poem, The Oath of Isis, reveals the potential for new subversive works of art in the collaborative digital space. Another famous writer recently followed suit when he undertook a charitable cause in response to a recent international crisis. Back in 2020, beloved British fantasy and sci-fi author Neil Gaiman wrote a poem called What You Need to Be Warm by crowdsourcing responses he received in the form of tweets. This wasn't the first time Gaiman turned to Twitter to inspire his writings. In 2011, he partnered up with the telecommunications company BlackBerry to embark on a new project. Gaiman posed 12 questions to his fans over Twitter related to the months of the year. For instance, one of the questions he asked was, what's the strangest thing that ever happened to you in February? A user named at Astral Gypsy replied, quote, met a girl on beach, searching for her grandma's pendant, lost 50 years ago, I had it, found previous February, end quote. Gaiman composed 12 unique pieces of speculative short fiction based on each of these responses, and the result was his collection called A Calendar of Tales. Nearly a decade later, he used a similar approach to write the poem What You Need to Be Warm. Inspired by the ongoing refugee crises in Syria and Iraq, 
Gaiman crowdsourced responses and reflections from Twitter on what it means to feel warm, and used all of these to compose his poem. Recently, a video adaptation of What You Need to Be Warm, which combines animation alongside Gaiman's recital of the poem, was put together by the United Nations Refugee Agency to be sold at an online auction as an NFT, or non-fungible token, on the blockchain trading platform Mars Panda World. The winner of the auction will not only receive the poem's video adaptation in NFT form, but also an autographed copy of Gaiman's acclaimed comic book, The Sandman, and a personalized video message from Gaiman himself. The bidding for the poem sits at over $118,000 as of February 7th, 2022. The winner's money will go towards the UNHRC, which will use the funds to help support Afghani refugees fleeing from the Taliban. Back in 1993, for the milestone 50th issue of his Sandman comic book series, Gaiman wrote a standalone story called Ramadan, which shed light on the aftermath of the Gulf War and the harsh conditions faced by civilians in Baghdad at the time. In 2022, his video poem, What Does It Mean to Be Warm?, seems positioned to serve a similar purpose of public awareness for an ongoing humanitarian crisis. Gaiman isn't the only famous author to be involved in this UN auction. The Booker Prize-winning author of the novels The Kite Runner and A Thousand Splendid Sons, Khaled Hosseini, who is originally from Afghanistan, is also auctioning off watercolor illustrations from his recent book, Sea Prayer, in the form of NFTs to support the cause. NFTs enable the private ownership of digital art through blockchain technology and have become an increasingly popular trend amongst online creatives and consumers. Gaiman and Hosseini, who are both already successful and established artists, are novelties when it comes to this trend. But could their participation in the UNHRC's recent charitable initiative provide a glimpse at a potential partnership between acclaimed artists and blockchain exchange mediums? This is the question Jessica Kanzler poses in her article titled Can Crypto and the Creative Industry Collab? where she discusses Gaiman's recent NFT video poem. Kanzler recaps the history of NFTs and their democratizing potential for creatives struggling to generate income from their works. In the case of Neil Gaiman's What Do You Need to Be Warm?, the sale of NFT art pieces can also provide opportunities for altruism. However, Kanzler also points out how NFTs have, in many ways, transformed into a gimmicky fad in the public eye, which may neuter the broader benefits they bring, and instead just benefiting individual profiteers, while also alighting any broader artistic merits. To quote from her article, NFTs are the simulation of intellectual property ownership when ownership never actually leaves hands, end quote. She continues by saying, it's a pain that leads to transforming creativity into microtransactions and everything into loud, overwhelming audience participation, end quote. Regardless of how this digital artistic trend pans out, there's no denying that new platforms have provided the opportunity for unconventional and experimental video art forms. Time will only tell how this could affect creative mediums like film. But that's all for this week's Newsreel. Now, back to my conversation with Daniel. And it's interesting, I'm not sure if it's a coincidence, but in your TED talk, I believe you're also using a, a metaphor of poker in the context of- Oh, there's the foreshadowing. <laughs> I don't know, was, was that was that intentional or was that just, was poker just on sub, subconsciously there? Uh, wow. I, I You know, I, time is a flat circle, right? Like this <laughs> all already happened. So it's just, there's one of those moments where where the past is the present is the future. 
<laughs> How about that? Um, I think I think that's awesome. And, and speaking of sort of unconventional forms, um, I want to talk about a, a second poem of yours hmm. called "The Time Traveler's Pantoum." Uh, and I'll, I'll just preface this by saying that for those who don't know what a pantoum is, uh, you're in good company. It seems to be a very obscure poetry form. And interestingly, when I studied it in one of my creative writing classes, the example the instructor used uh, to teach it was none other than Daniel Scott Tisdale's <laughs> The Time Traveler's Pantoum. Uh, and just, I, I won't get into the, the nitty gritty here, but essentially it's a form, and you know, Daniel, you can obviously uh, fill in the details. It's a form that requires repeating lines. So you'd have a line in one stanza, it would go somewhere in the next stanza. You just carry that over for the rest of the poem. And yeah. you you decided to write one uh, about a, a time traveler and also adapt it into a, a sort of hand-drawn animated film. So I'd, I'd love to hear about that sort of process. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so the, the again, this is a part of the Vocational Poems uh, book project. And yeah, I was just sort of like thinking about different forms I could do. And uh, yeah, so the pantoum, you know, written in quatrain, so four line stanzas. And your second and your third line of stanza one will become the first, at, or sorry, your second and fourth will become the first and the third line of the next stanza. So I was like, oh, this is like a time traveling poem. It's a time traveling form because the parts are, are, are in the future, they're in the past. And so I thought, oh, what a perfect poem to write about time traveling. And interesting, just on a film note, I actually wrote that poem at TIFF. I can't remember what movie I'd gone to see. I'd gone to see something on a, a Friday late afternoon and ended up just sitting at the bar there and ordering dinner and then having a few cocktails. And I just had a very pleasant writing experience. You know, it was one of those writing experiences where people would kind of sit next to me and they'd ask me what I was doing. We'd talk about poetry for a bit. And, you know, maybe something they said would end up in the poem and kind of go from there. Um, and then, yeah, when I was making the, the, the video project, I just thought, OK, what's a classic YouTube genre? Of course, we have the whiteboard animation uh, is, is a kind of must do. And I just thought this is the perfect way to do it. And so I, I, I worked with a freelance animator who was amazing. You know, I obviously had to, to, to save up a bit of money to, to, to pay this person properly. And it was a fun process, right. To work with an animator where I'd get the character designs, I'd get these different ideas and, you know, I'd send a few ideas back and forth. Um, and that one was so good. I actually wish I would have done more with it. Um, it ended up, I, 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 I got some stuff on for some online festivals, but I wish I would have actually tried to send it to some, I was just too in a rush to get it out there. I was like, I wish I would have been more patient because I think, I think that animator did such a good job and the voice actor as well. I worked with the voice actor with that one and the voice actor did such a great job. I was like, damn, I should have sent that to a few more festivals because I think we could have had a nice little bit of a run. Mm -hmm. It was definitely a good one. Uh, and I think it sort of relates nicely to something we spoke about earlier, because obviously this is a, for lack of a better word, I, I guess, a genre poem adaptation, if you want to yeah. call it. It's like sci-fi yeah. in, in the loosest sense of the word, totally. maybe. So I, I think yeah. maybe that's an interesting opening to discuss your general takes on, uh, you know, genre uh, and mm -hmm. sort of uh, less conventional uh, stuff that, that we we tend to, uh, for better or for worse, sort of push to the side in, in yeah. conventional film or literary studies. Yeah, that I was. It's funny. I was, you know, before when I when, when I'm in person teaching and I do the same thing online. You know, UTSC we always start classes ten minutes after the hour. So, so same I, here. You have same tea time. Day. It's universal, yeah. thankfully. <laughs> you have tea time, and so and so I, I like to get there a little early and and you know 
just have the zoom on and we just chat, talk about wherever the conversation kind of takes us. And however, we ended up here uh, on, on Tuesday in one of my classes, it was on this very subject. And I said, yeah, like one of the great regrets of my life was when I was an undergrad and, you know, suddenly I'm reading all this like very highbrow kind of poetry and suddenly I'm reading all this theory and all this criticism. And I'm, and, and I was just, oh, I'm a smart person now. And I only like smart person things, you know, and I, I don't like horror movies and I don't, I don't like, uh, sports as much, right. You know, and, and so I kind of like got away from the things that, that I, that I loved a lot and, and, and spent a number of years kind of away from that. And it really wasn't until recent years that I started getting back into horror movies, you know, started getting into pro wrestling again, started getting into these things that I love. And, and, you know, I guess being away kind of helped get some perspective and come with a new perspective, but, but yeah, like I, 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 I wish I would have carried these things with me, you know, longer and, and stuck with them longer for the community, you know, for the enjoyment. And again, you know, for all the creative opportunities, right. All, all of these things have such an amazing opportunity for us to create, you know, for us to collaborate and for us to, you know, connect with, connect with audiences, connect with our fellow fans. Mm-hmm. Well, guess what? Now you have the best of both worlds because not only is this video beloved, but it was also on the syllabus for an English class. So yeah. I'd, I'd say <laughs> you're doing right. you're doing pretty well. <laughs> and since we're sort of covering all mediums with your works here, I'll admit I have not had the chance to reach, read much uh, prose by you, but I know that you have a, a short story collection that's coming out at the yeah. time of this episode recording. It probably would have been released already, but it officially comes out in October of 2021, if I'm correct. Yeah, that's right. So, and I believe the title is Waveforms and Doom Scrolls, right? So do you yeah. want to sort of describe what inspired this collection and what stories touch upon? Yeah, so I mean, the collection just came about the way I think short story collections do for a lot of people who aren't mainly prose writers, you know? It was just, I wrote a story, then I wrote another story. And, you know, you're kind of just writing these stories, you know, and and, and because that's not my main area, like, I mean, there's the, the oldest story in there is from when I was a master's student at U of T in 2007, right? Like that's how far, and, and one of the ideas for one of the stories in there, and I started that story was in, would have been fall of 2006 when I started as a creative writing student, right? So it's sort of like uh, a, a, a process and a book that's been coming together for uh, for a long time. But yeah, the title itself comes from sort of two, two of the stories. One is Waveform and one is Doom Scrolls. And, and we took that title because it captures the kind of two poles of the book. The one is the sort of like, well, doom scrolls, you know, the darker stories, the heavier stories, the, yeah, like there's stories that now, you know, when I, when I read them, you know, to edit, worked on them with my editor and to copy edit and all that. Some of these stories, I'm like, how and why did I write this? Like, oh my goodness, this is really quite difficult and, and, and dire, but of course, you know, I understand the, the truth that they're after, the truth of our moment, you know, the experience of our time that they want to preserve and explore. And then the waveform are the more, ho- more hopeful stories, the stories that are about the power of art, you know, the power of friendship, love, all that kind of positive stuff. So, so the book definitely kind of just is, is a kind of like wave through these kind of these, these heights and sort of valleys of, of, of experience and, and sort of human creation and connection. Mm -hmm. And I have to ask if on the off chance you do intend to adapt some of the stories in this collection, I I imagine it would be a little more straightforward compared to 
adapting your poems for vocational, you know, poetry. Yeah. Because obviously a prose narrative lends itself far better to a film adaptation than, you know, a poem. So I'm curious, is that in your radar at oh, all? Oh, big time. Well, it's already in the roots of the book because the book's, uh, I guess, unique in, in a way in the sense that, so Humanity's Wing is one of the stories in there. And, and after that story was published in a, in a journal, I, I, you know, I adapted that into a short film. But then the, the other, uh, the opposite thing has happened in that collection where I've actually taken a film that I made, Waveform, and I've adapted it into a short story. That is so cool. Walk us through that. Yeah, so, ba- you know, so basically I, I took the voiceover and, you know, because it's a very, it's a first person voiceover. It's very, you know, it's very accessible. It's very, it's very poetic, but it has, it definitely has an emotional arc to it, you know, that a story reader will still appreciate. And then I just did, you know, high res screen grabs of the images and then tried to lay them out on the page in an artful way, you know, so it, it, it almost has like a, I won't say comic book feel, but it definitely is like a, 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 an image text, you know, it's not just a story, it is the images are, are, are just as, as present and important as the words are. So it also then led to a lot of headaches for the designer. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine, but it was all worth it. Oh uh, yeah, exactly. And just to clarify, because I know you had mentioned this in the past, this was a film you had made when a certain uh, president recently was was inaugurated, uh, and it was the reaction of, of students in the Humanities Wing at UTSC. Is that right? That's what Humanities Wing is exactly. Yeah. I see. Yeah. I see. Um, and yeah, I mean, like the fact going from a film to a you know a a literary, i.e., written adaptation. I think that that's, that's so fascinating, and you seem to be really embodying that combination of, of mediums there. Yeah. I, I think that's great. Um, and I, I know it, it wasn't the, the first of your films that had a, a political slant to it. There was The Walls, which I, I don't want us to stress I, upon too much, but that was also occasional poems, right? Yeah, that's right. I know, me too. It's like, I never talk about that one. I never share that one. I'm just like... Uh, I was on a panel on Sunday at the Canadian Authors Association called Beyond Print, and I was talking about using film to promote and things like that. And I talked about the vocational home video project, but I did not bring up that video. <laughs> and I'm sorry to have broached it now. <laughs> I, I just remember in the journal, you said it was the most difficult one for you to write, understandably so, having to yeah. watch that footage. Yeah. But I mean, I think it just speaks to the, the fact that, you know, film as a medium, maybe the most has this ability to uh, touch us in these deep yeah. emotional places. Uh, yeah. And I really wanted to talk to you about your recent piece for The Walrus, mm-hmm. which is this incredibly poignant uh, testimonial article. I will attach it in the episode description, but I, I definitely like all the listeners to, to read it because I, I think, Daniel, you you put so much of your, your heart into that and, and you touch upon how vital films have been in your life for getting through you through the dark times and, and fostering resilience and wellness. And I, I think that's awesome. And I, I'm curious uh, if you can comment on this, the maybe the wider implications that people can, can view this from, the idea that films maybe have a role uh, in dictating uh, any viewer's health and wellness. You know, how can films be used in a, a more positive, uh, personal way? I realize that sounds like a very abstract question, but yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. No, no, that's a, that's, that's, that's a really important question. I mean, yeah, I would say, you know, I think the, 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 the first thing is that, it, you know, the main thing is that we, you know, filmmakers 
just need to make their films, need to make their truth and, and not kind of overthink potential awareness and activists, you know, elements of it. Unless of course that's the point of their film, then of course that's the whole thing that they need to, to think about. But yeah, I think in terms of a certain responsibility for filmmakers, I, I do think at this point in, in history, I don't think I'm being like some censorship monster and saying that we can't have these, these hateful and stereotypical and, and hurtful, you know, representations of mental illness, you know, as I've said already a couple of times in, in this year, this, this podcast, I'm a big horror movie fan, but of course, horror movies are responsible for some of the worst, you know, just like the maniac who has escaped from the asylum and is now murdering everybody, you know, like that's the plot of like almost every like seventies and eighties, like bad slasher movie. So it's like, we've definitely, you know, kind of moved away from that. Um, and, and this, you know, and of course, the flip side of it, horror is a genre that is often so valued by people, you know, who struggle, you know, with mental health, you know, who find kind of solace in it for a lot of different reasons. There's actually a documentary that I, I, I put a few bucks towards the Kickstarter on horror and mental health, you know, that, 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 that I'm, I'm excited to see. But honestly, I would say like, you know, a, another important thing is, is there's great, I, I had the chance to take part to show Waveform in the uh, Scottish Mental Health Arts and Film Festival. And I think events like that are, are very important. And I think events like that, you know, the next step is, is how can we just get more of these filmmaking tools into people's hands as a part of their mental health journey, as a part of their wellness journey? You know, we're seeing more and more writing workshops, but I also think just because people do, you know, love film so much and respond to film so much, I would love to see that become more accessible you know, like almost little, little film units where you have groups, uh, uh, who, people who have these t skills as filmmaking, who can, you know, work with people in their treatment, you know, and, and suddenly making a movie about their experience can be a part of that, that treatment process. Mm -hmm. And I think it speaks to maybe a broader, more philosophical question, which you sort of touch upon in this article in question about, you know, what the purpose of film and art in general is, you know, yeah. there's this stereotype that one camp says you know film is escapism you know you want to yeah. get away from your issues in your daily life and the other camp that says no film is about you know a certain relatability uh, and immersion into yeah. you know people's lives that are maybe dealing yeah. with some issues that you're grappling with and you you touch upon this in your piece and obviously I think it's simplistic to say it's an either or for these right. camps but like what's your take on that? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely am at the at one of the extremes in the sense that, yeah, I, I, I do think, you know, that it isn't isn't an escape from reality. I do think it is an immersion in reality. I think it's an exposure to realities and experiences. Like, I just look at TIFF and I just think, like, all of these worlds and lives and struggles, you know, across the globe that we're able to, like, encounter um, that we wouldn't otherwise, I just think like, how could that possibly be an escape? You know what I mean? When you're, when you're seeing someone else's view of the world of, of trauma, of recovery, of community, uh, you know, all of, of, of entertainment, right? It's like that, that's just a way of, of living in a richer world, you know, of, of knowing the world more deeply and more, more intricately. Mm -hmm. And this may seem like an offbeat question, but you, you seem like very much a distinctly, you know, experimental consumer of art and, and experimental creator of it. What's, what's your take on like mainstream blockbuster stuff? Oh yeah, no, I mean, I'm also like, 
you know, in the end, everything is a genre, right? Everything has conventions, everything has expectations, everything has its audience, you know, it just so happens that, you know, the experimental conventions just don't interest as many people, you know, and so it doesn't to me make those any more valuable or less valuable than someone who can write like, you know, a banger of a fast and fear, you know what I mean? Like, you know, maybe she'll be mad at me for saying this, but you know, my wife's favorite, favorite franchise is the fast and the furious franchise. And it's just like, for what it is, it's, it's genius. And we actually, we actually, you know, uh, earlier in the summer, we watched the whole franchise from start to finish, including Hobbs and Shaw uh, and, and including turbo, you know, the animated film about the snail. We, 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 we count that in the fast fran uh, franchise. <laughs> is it okay? Well, and, and it's just, you know, like, it's it's brilliant, you know, in terms of working with the conventions and, and the expectations. So no, I'm definitely like, again, I guess I've already said this, right? I'm just like a fan of of so of so many things. And I, I think any genre that you're gonna have the top examples of those that are worth thinking about. Mm -hmm. And obviously as a teacher of that course, writing for the stage and screen, you probably encounter students on a regular basis who have varying tastes and interests for what they like to consume and want to create, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I make sure to go out on my way early on in the lectures, in the discussions, in the screenings to make sure people know like, like genre is encouraged. You know what I mean? Because I know often when we take classes at universities, we think like, oh, it's only, it needs to be art house. It needs to be high drama. It needs to be, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so I make sure people know that anything goes in that class. And, and in terms of how I evaluate something in terms of the feedback we give in the workshop, you know, we make sure to advise one another. It's like, give person the person the feedback on the script they're writing you know don't don't try to turn it into a drama when it's a comedy you know don't try to turn it into the serious film you know when it is a horror movie or something right make sure we're helping these people make the best version of the film that they want to write mm -hmm. to, to quote something you just said a few minutes ago don't mistake it for a different animal right exactly <laughs> judge, judge, judge it by the animal it is and uh -huh. I think that's, that's a great analogy and of course, you're the best person to ask this final question I had prepared. In terms of extrapolating some sort of general tips or advice to young students who are aspiring screenwriters or filmmakers, uh, what would you what would you generally espouse? I mean, you know, the, the 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 sort of classic is just like watch, 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 read, 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 write, write, write. You know, just do a lot of that all the time. Um, I would say, you know, it's it, it you know. In, in that process, you're going to discover your interests. You're going to discover your strengths. You're going to discover your weaknesses. And I would say, you know, it, it be, be engaged and, and, and sort of inspired by that learning process and, 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 and explore it in all of its different possible ways. So, you know, say for me personally, you know, storytelling was a weakness I had. Writing dialogue was a weakness I had. And so often I would, if I say when I was writing uh, early short stories, I would try to find ways to kind of avoid that. And, and in the end, make some unique work, right? Make some good work, make a lot of bad work, but make, so it was worth just catering to my strengths and work. But of course, it was also just as important to, you know, read these craft books, to, to read to read and watch a lot so I could develop storytelling skills, so I could develop dialogue writing skills and, and improve on that front. And so I would say, yeah, in that learning process, kind of head in lots of different directions in terms of, in terms of what comes naturally to you, in terms of what you like, and in terms of what could, you know, are these, are these necessary learning opportunities. And in terms of, you know, in terms of filmmaking and screenwriting, I would say, you know, 
really do really do take that chance to make things really do if it just means you got your iPhone and and a basic editing software on your laptop make stuff collaborate with people you know these you never know what can come of these little things and of these little relationships and and the the learning process and 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 the 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 production the 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 final result process is just totally worth it and mm-hmm. and and you know in terms of that you know it's like you never know. I, I was at a, a at a TIFF talk with the filmmaker Roberto Minervini a couple summers ago, and they showed all of his work, and he was there, and they interviewed him after, and it was really beautiful, moving weekend. And when I asked him what was his advice to to, to young filmmakers, like what do I tell my, my students, and he just said, you know, often your weakness is your strength, you know. And he mm-hmm. he, he talked about his own filmmaking that way. It's like they didn't have a big budget, they had a very small crew, they weren't very experienced, but it's like. And all of a sudden he generated this hybrid form of almost documentary fiction cinema that was, that is its own kind of distinct thing. Right. And that, and that uniqueness, that strength came out of them just sort of like inhabiting and utilizing their supposed weaknesses. I think that's stellar. And it sort of reminds me of the preface you wrote for our journal publication uh, last year for Screenwriters Perspectives volume two where you sort of emphasize this idea of listening to others, you yeah. know, uh, getting that knowledge from others and yeah. connecting with uh, people on that that inner level where you're both passionate about certain things and willing to share it. So it sounds very sort of similar to the sentiment you're expressing here. And I, I just thought to ask, because in that uh, preface, you spoke about, um, you know, the joy of wanting to actually sit in the theater again and watch a movie and have that, that collective experience uh i know tiff was online this year but have you had the chance to experience that as of yet since we last spoke i have not i have not sadly and i've just been i've just been missing it so much and of course with with tiff it's been in my mind uh i had the other day i was just on on reddit on on horror reddit and someone was talking about you know kind of underrated contemporary horror movies and they said uh, oh mandy and the witch and i was like oh i commented i was like I saw the witch at TIFF in a packed house. I saw Mandy at a midnight screening at like uh, Young and Dundas, you know, packed house with just a bunch of late night weirdos, you know? And I was like, oh, I missed that. Everybody just screaming and talking and shouting at the screen and laughing together. And yeah, so it's all to say, no, I haven't, but I can't wait. It's my sincerest hope that we'll all be able to return to that sometime soon. Absolutely. Because I, I think we're all, we're all yearning for it at this point. Well, thanks so much for joining me, Daniel. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you. Really lovely. Great questions. I enjoyed this a lot. Thanks for listening to our conversation. You can find all of Daniel's articles and videos which we discussed in the episode description. You can also keep up with all of SVC's activities, including our past journal publications and the upcoming club meeting information, on our website, also linked in the description. I'd like to take a moment to thank the Victoria University Student Administrative Council, VUSAC, and the University of Toronto Students' Union, UTSU, for their continuous support of our club, Screenwriting at Victoria College. Finally, I want to give a big shout out to our entire podcast team. Our audio editor, Karine Langmuir, our writing and research team, Nujat Tabasum and Kaylin Ball, our content coordinator, Connie Zen, and finally, our content head and co-host, Marta Anielska. This has been Vikram Nishawan, Fade to Black.